Welcome to Charter Central, a podcast for educational leaders brought to you by Central Michigan University, the Center for Charter Schools, a leader in educational choice and options. My name is Orlando Castellan, and I'm here with my colleagues, Janelle Brzezinski and Megan Brown. Megan's new to our podcast, so we want to welcome Megan. Thank you so much, Orlando. It is my pleasure to be with you all in this new venture for this season. Um, as Orlando said, I'm Megan Brown. I am our Director of University and Community Partnerships. This is my 20th year in education. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, and I've had multiple roles over those years. I was fortunate enough to be in the classroom for 10 years, uh, transitioned into administration for five years, and I am coming up on my fifth year now with the Center for Charter Schools. And it has been a pleasure every moment, every day to be a part of this fantastic team. So I'm just truly looking forward to meeting with you all and doing the podcast and connecting in a different way to our audience. So thanks so much for having me. And we're excited to have you. And um, this is actually our third year doing the podcast, Janelle and I. So Janelle, you wanna tell our, our uh, listeners where they can find the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Excited to get started for, for a new season. As Orlando said, this is our third year. So if you haven't subscribed yet, we certainly encourage you to do so so you don't miss any episodes. Um, but you can find us to listen or subscribe on our website, which is thecenterforcharters.org. We're also available on all of the podcast platforms. So Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast, we will be there. So looking forward to a, a great new season of some really important topics, including the one we're going to talk about today. And today we're going to talk about special education. And like with many of our podcasts, we have a very experienced um, individual, uh, Kathy Barker, is our special education consultant and she has over 40 years of experience in education. Kathy provides oversight and support to CMU partner schools in the delivery of special education services. She conducts continuous improvement reviews to assist schools in the delivery of high quality education for students identified with disabilities and she ensures compliance with federal and state and local education rules and regulations. She serves as a liaison for schools with the state intermediate with with the state and the intermediate school district um, and communicates with school leadership teams concerning changes to the special education rules. Um, in for her 40 years, Kathy has held several positions in special education throughout the state, including a school principal and supervisor of quality insurance with the Michigan Department of Education. And she's also served as the executive director of special education for an intermediate school district. Uh, Kathy comes to us with a, multiple degrees, including a master's degree in education, for, uh, in, uh, a master's degree in education in psychology from Michigan State University. So we're super excited to welcome Kathy to our podcast and this upcoming interview uh, that we're going to have with her. So stick around as we have a conversation with Kathy and she dives into the idea of special education in our charter schools. Welcome to Charter Central, a podcast for education leaders. So 
So we'd like to welcome Kathy Barker to our podcast and excited to have her to talk to us a little bit about special education. And I guess we'd like to start really at the beginning um, and we'd like to hear you tell us a little bit about special education and the services that must be available to students who are determined in need of them. For those who don't have a direct connection to this work or schools, can you help explain to us what this means and looks like? Sure. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Special education it started way back in the 1950s, and it was at that point um, offering services, accesses, and services to students who, to date, had not been served by the public schools. They were typically students with very significant cognitive or behavioral challenges, um, and were deemed uneducable. And hopefully they got some services maybe through a community um, church that held class or such. But that was the beginning of the conversation that these children deserved access. And so now skip forward all the way to today and that legislation and those services and what that all looks like is immensely different. Um, it's now special education is meant to provide the types of services and specially designed instruction that allows any child with a disability to have access to our public schools. So in today's world, if you were to ask someone, what is that continuum of special education, we would be talking about everything from full day programming and transportation for some students who need specially designed instruction their entire day, and all the way to students who might need to see a social worker or might just need some speech and language help for articulation, or those who need specially designed instruction in terms of their academics. Um, so every school by law is required to offer a continuum of services Sometimes that means all those programs are available in your school. Sometimes that means you've contracted for those programs in different locations. Um, usually that's a matter of scale. Uh, is it economic for you to do that? Uh, or do you feel it's in the best entrance, interest of the students? So this also goes into the whole conversation of least restrictive environment. And always wanting our, our children and students to be in with their peers the maximum amount that they can, um, because we know how powerful that is for them both socially and academically to have the models. So you're gonna see different types of um, clusters of these services and programs in different locations, but it is the responsibility of every school to have that full continuum available in some way for the students that are enrolled at their school. And Kathy, I'm sure there's there's so much collaboration that goes into these services, right? You mentioned sometimes of having to go outside of the school, but certainly within the school too. Um, what sort of supports could um, general education teachers receive from special education teachers that could really allow for that team approach to, to educating special education students? Yeah, the, the main um, emphasis here is that all of our students in our schools are general education students. Um, there is no such thing as SPED students. You'll hear some people use that term, but um, it's really always student first because we have students who are homeless, students who come from poverty, students who have English as a second language. And we have students who have disabilities and need IEPs. Um, they're all in the same bubble. 
of students with, with general, general, excuse me, general education students. So the education of those students is ultimately the responsibility of the general education teacher. So it's really critical for their involvement from day one in really identifying how are we going to level the playing field for these kids with disabilities and figure out what is needed for them in order for them to be successful in the core curriculum. Uh, the majority of these students, like 98%, will be in core curriculum and they're expected to do grade level content. So that gen ed teacher is sitting there and saying, okay, I'm ready and willing. I know what I'm supposed to teach. Now I need assistance in figuring out how to best teach this child because it's about the access to the material, the access to the, the teaching environment. What is it about a child with a disability that is impeding their ability to progress in that curriculum? And so the special ed teacher comes in with the expertise in access and remedi remediation of skills. Um, the, the genet teacher is that core content expert. They have really mastered that. The genet teacher comes in as the master of how do I provide specially designed instruction for this child? And so that genet teacher is part of the whole conversation about what do we know about the way this child learns, what's interfering with their learning, and that's the need for the IEP. And then learning from the special ed teacher and collaborating together they can design the type of instruction that's going to allow that child to come to grade level and to be successful in that grade level content. I think it's a great place here to also emphasize that um, we have a cultural myth in special education that because a child has a disability, they'll never be on grade level. And that's the absolute opposite of what's the intention of special education. Specially designed instruction is to bring the child to grade level. It's to identify where the skill gaps and what types of techniques um, and, and different approaches does the child even need to learn in order to help them be a better learner. So it's anything from doing a real specific evidence-based targeted reading approach to get them up to grade level in reading to helping them learn how to use accommodations like graphic um, graphic design, um, visual type mapping, um, using a, any type of an accommodation that we're going to give them, a software, a device. So it, it's quite an array that might be going on from that special ed teacher's uh, approach to what that child needs to our other itinerants, which is our, you know, psychologists, speech and language pathologists, social workers. So Kathy, you talked a couple times about this concept of an IEP. Uh, for those that um, are not in the building uh, dealing with IEPs, can you talk? Can you can you tell us a little bit about what that IEP, what it stands for, what it means, and also what's the process for ensuring that it is followed? Yeah, the IEP, the the student's individual educational plan is. Um, what is designed once it's determined, or it actually is the determining factor of looking at all of the evidence and, and data. Uh, hopefully you come into that process super data rich with everything from classroom observation to um, specialists who have actually spent time with that student and, and use a lot of different um, tools to measure um, different aspects of their learning. Um, parents are a critical part in that to bring in 
the knowledge and understanding of the child's development and where they're at socially, emotionally, um, as well as academically. And this team comes together and they look at all the evidence and there's two factors. One is, does the child have a disability? Um, and if it's no, they don't go any, then that child's not eligible for an IEP. If the answer is yes, the second question is, are they in need of specially designed instruction? Not all children with a disability need an IEP. So it's not that the, always, the two are always linked. Um, so if, you, if they say, yes, the child needs specially um, designed instruction, then the next question is for what? And why is that? What is the need? And what is that specially designed instruction that the student's going to need in order to uh, progress in the curriculum? And who is gonna deliver that? And so that IEP gets designed as a team collaborative effort to say, okay, the student will get this type of service with these goals for this to meet this need at this frequency and duration. And that is effective for one year, although one year doesn't mean you don't have the ability to go in and revisit that IEP during the course of the year. Um, it's something that really needs to be, the student's progress really needs to be monitored. And you wanna know if what you're doing is working. You don't wanna waste a year with an IEP that's not effective. So understanding you, that you're constantly evaluating, it's the teacher cycle of plan, do, review. Plan it out, provide it, measure it, see if it's effective. And if it's not, shift course. Get together, shift course. There's nothing wrong with saying, well, that didn't work. Um, let's try something different. There is something wrong with going for 12 months and then saying, oh, no, that didn't work. Um, you've just lost, or I don't want to say lost a year, but you have the potential. You've, you've lost opportunity within that year to do something different. So that IEP is um, something that the parents expect to get progress monitoring on right along with the report card cycle. Um, and communication is so critical between everyone, the school, the parents, any outside professionals that are working with the child. Um, and it's, it's a compliance factor. I mean, this is something that we look at as an authorizer is to make sure that our schools are compliant with their IEPs. Um, they're not meant to sit on a shelf. They're, they're living, breathing things. They are what that student should be experiencing on a daily basis. So Kathy, you had mentioned that, you know, with general education teachers, that they would need to understand what are the accommodations and modifications that are included in the IEP and the resources that the students may need. Can you explain the differences between modifications and accommodations? Because sometimes general education teachers may not understand the differences between the two. Sure. Um, actually, sometimes special educators don't either. And so that's, that's always something we want to make sure sure that we clarify and ensure that they're real clear on that too. And accommodations um, and modifications are individual. This is again, one of those factors that's addressed in an IEP. I mean, accommodation is really how we're going to promote and assure access to the learning environment. So we wanna be thinking about for this particular, so this particular child is learning exact same content as all the other kids in the, in the classroom. And it might be um, a change in the presentation of the materials, in the response, we were getting responses from the student, the setting in which it's being addressed, um, or timing, scheduling. You know, when you hear things like, oh, he needs to take breaks, 
or we're only going to do this and we're going to do this test in four sections instead of one large test all at once. Or I'm going to let this student record his responses instead of write his responses. Those are accommodations, but it isn't altering what you expect from the learning targets. Modifications is when you start to change the learning targets. You're really starting to um, modify what a student is taught or what you're expecting them to learn. So this is a real uh, deeper conversation because when you start doing that, you're starting to change your expectation of the acceleration of learning in that student. That trajectory starts changing. So you wanna be real careful with that, but that might be something like, you know, oh, we're not gonna grade this child. They're gonna pass or not pass because we're gonna give them more leeway um, and how much they need to master, or we're gonna give them a simpler question. Well, that simpler question can change the complexity of the mastery of the content. So if you're going to do that, you're probably lowering your expectations of at what level that student's gonna master that content. Um, simpler math, everybody's doing multiplication, two digit by two digit, but you're gonna say, well, we're really at one digit math one by one multiplication. So you can see how you've just, you've modified that expectation. And then we get into assessments. Yeah, because you also have a section where the, then you have an accommodation conversation about the assessments. So the student's gonna take standardized assessments, state assessments, uh, the map growth assessment is used a lot in a lot of our partner schools. And there, we really want to make sure that we are always looking at what we choose and as assessment, I mean, as an accommodation for the assessments to align with what that, how that assessment has been developed. Um, we also want to make sure that if we're using an assessment accommodation, we're giving that student opportunity to practice that in the classroom assessments. We don't want them to go into a high stakes situation of assessments and not understand or be able to use the accommodation that we're giving to them. Uh, but in our assessment accommodations, we have to be really careful that we're talking about access skills. We're not talking about changing the target skills. And a good example of that is in the MAP growth test, there is a reading passages portion and it's meant to measure the ability to read. So accommodation in the IEP might say, we're gonna let them use speech, um, text to speech. But in that case, you wouldn't want to be using that because you're not gonna get a measurement of what that student really can do as a reader. And that's the purpose of that test. So understanding what it is you're testing and why you're testing should lead to a better decision-making about what are the accommodations for what sections of a test. So you also you have to understand, that. I'm sorry, you also have to understand and make sure you know what the state allows on some of those tests. So you mentioned the academic components and the assessment components. Is there anywhere on the IEP that addresses behavior or the social emotional support that is needed for students? Absolutely. Um, there are many times that's what brings you to the table of talking about the child. And is that, is that behavior or that social emotional need a disability? You know, is it temporary? or is it something that is more lifelong? Um, remember disabilities 
some dis- we all have disabilities at some point in our lives that come and go. You might break an ankle. You might, um, you know, your eyesight might go when you're older and then you get cataract surgery and it's gone. We're looking for disabilities of, that, that really are going to be lifelong. Um, that doesn't mean that they're always going to impact you the same way lifelong, but they are lifelong. They don't go away. And so you might have a child who is having, um, experiencing a really rough patch of life. Um, maybe you didn't know it, but that child's become homeless or their grandfather just died. That was their best friend. Um, and they become sullen and withdrawn and really, and they're not doing any work and you're, you know, really concerned about that. This is where the parent conversation and the parent contribution becomes so critical. Um, that child might need some services, but not necessarily special services. They might need some counseling and some, some support, but the child who has um, a true disability, social, emotionally, will be um, also, they'll be assessed by a school social worker, by a psychologist, sometimes by a psychiatrist. And then those will all be um, contributions to the discussion at the IEP. And at that point, that's where they're going to make that decision. Is this a disability? And if so, is it interfering with their ability to progress in the curriculum? And that's the, the clincher that a lot of people don't realize. It has to affect their ability to progress in the curriculum. So if in fact it is that, again, you, we go through, we say, what, how is it impacting that? What services would align to the needs that we're seeing with the student? And so what are we doing at this point in time for that child? And we have to remember that our services don't always align just with what we in our minds traditionally would think is the connection to that service provider. Like a lot of people think it's, oh, that child just needs social work. Well, that child might also need um, some specially designed instruction in terms of techniques and ways to deal with maybe the anxiety it brings into the testing situation or the classroom situation or, or how to use breaks effectively or how to do a self-monitoring of their own anxiety or feelings and how can they respond? Can they ask for breaks themselves when they, when they feel something's building up in them. Um, so when we get those goals on an IEP, they belong to everybody. They're not, they're not role specific. So kids with social and emotional needs are a great example. Sometimes some of the most important people in their lives are the, the uh, cafeteria worker or the custodian. Um, you know, it's whoever they can, in the, within the school setting you feel they can connect to and that might become a part of their plan. Now, outside of the IEP, sometimes there's an actual behavior intervention plan written. It's called the BIP. Um, and so if you have a student who comes or transfers into your school and you're looking at their records or CA60 records and make sure you've got all the special documents in that record um, and look for references for things like that. Did he have a behavior assessment? Did he, have behave, he or she have a behavior plan? Um, you know, I just caught myself with my pronouns there, he and she. Um, we do know that females are, are really underrepresented and often are not identified for social emotional. They tend to be quieter and more withdrawn. The actual identification tends to go more nationally towards the male who is more um, outwardly aggressive um, and loud and interfering. So 
it's just a little tip to, you know, keep your radar up for that gender difference and make sure that you're really always in your, you know, we have this little mind called the child find mind where we're scanning and we're always looking for, you know, am I, is, is this just a temporary blip or is this um, something that I really should be getting some more folks involved in to talk about? And Kathy, and that, of course, um, I was going to say that would go to your, you know, any type of your, your intervention teams, you know, whether you call them child study or MTSS or, um, but having a, a system in place in your school where professionals come together and talk about kids and, and talking about, you know, I've got a question about the student. This is what I'm observing. What, what should we be doing? What should we be looking for? Is there something we should be doing? Um, Kathy, the pandemic has certainly impacted all, all parts of our world, especially education, but wondering to get your thoughts on the challenges in the specific area that the pandemic has presented to educators and maybe some of the best practices or things that you've seen schools do um, to really um, make sure that these essential services are still being offered in this challenging environment. Yeah, it's, um, I think the challenging environment becomes presentation, but also engagement. Um, you know, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I mean, that analogy is really pretty true here. Uh, I have seen situations where people have done all, multiple creative things. Um, <clears throat> everything from actually setting up opportunities to meet in parks and in outdoor locations to, to, to make sure they have that eyeball on the student um, and really continue to monitor their own um, social emotional development to folks who have done some daily check-ins or daily instruction. But I've also seen where students don't take advantage of that. And, and it's a very sad situation. Um, it's challenging for the educator, but you know, often it's really challenging for the parent We've got parents who are working and we've got students who aren't motivated to get on online if it's a virtual. And so um, they have been, re, you know, regressing, but it isn't necessarily the fault of a failure to provide that opportunity, but a failure to be, get, be able to find a successful way to get the student engaged. Um, so we've got kids who now are back in person who have um, some significant loss. Um, they've lost previous skills, and they also haven't been acquiring skills in that time. But in overall, um, what I'm hearing is that students are really glad to be back. Um, after the settling in period, all students had to get reacclimated in the many cases of coming back to full-time um, in person. It's uh, the routine is, is settling in. Um, what I have heard, there's a whole other aspect of this though, and that's child find. Um, there's an obligation on a school's part to always be aware and um, active in a child find process. And that's so that we identify kids with, with disabilities who need IEPs or 504 plans for that matter. And there's a challenge here in that you do have kids coming back who have regressed. And in the past, that academic gap used to be a, a real um linchpin for a lot of teachers to say, I think we need to talk about this child. Now we have a large, large part of our population coming back with regression because of lack of engagement or lack of um, access to 
instruction in the way that it worked for them. I do, sh I should say too, though, we're also hearing stories about kids who have IEPs or just in disabilities who thrived in that virtual environment. I mean, it's like, wow, <laughs> this is what really works for this kid. Um, it depends on what the needs of the student is, how they learn. So going back to the child pine though, um, the things we have to really watch out for right now that we're uh, informing educators about is long-term COVID. Um, the long-term COVID in children, adolescents, we have yet to under totally understand from a medical perspective. And we have to be ready to understand and look at each individual child in terms of what implications might they have if they did have COVID. 19 and they are they have a possibility of having some um, episodic different types of health impairments that come from that and that, that might not they may not need special ed but they may need a 504 plan or a health care plan for for a period of time from that and uh, it, again we just don't understand it yet but we need to have our radar up for those types of situations. The other is um, just the social emotional uh, aspects of if you have been in a family where someone near to you has been uh, very critically sick from COVID and uh, maybe you've lost a family member or a community member um, and you're scared that your mom or dad might get it or that you might get it. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects of COVID that we need to be thinking about and how our children process that in their world and their developmental level. So Kathy, um, you talked about the responsibility of the entire teaching staff for these students. And you talked a little bit about uh, some regression that might take place in students. If a staff member is seeing a student regress in these areas, or if a parent is seeing a student that they think might have or be eligible um, to have some special education services, what should that parent or staff member do? Yeah, that's that the minute that a uh, school becomes aware that there is a suspicion of a disability, whether it's from parent or from the um, teacher, they have a responsibility to consider that a referral. And once you get a referral, it does not mean you have to go through a full assessment, but that referral triggers the process of now really looking at all the information about that student and determining what that next step will be. If it's not to evaluate for special education, um, there probably is going to be a conversation with your student support team or instructional team about what types of interventions would be appropriate for that student right now. And this is when you get a lot of times into your MTSS tier one, two, and three interventions to see if there is a way to accelerate that growth and bring that student back up to um, grade level. Sometimes that starts and then it progresses to a special education referral. Um, sometimes the, the growth projection is met by the intervention. Um, and I think the important thing is to make sure you understand you do not necessarily have to go into a full evaluation, but if you have any doubts, do it. Um, 
do it. Go, go through the whole evaluation to keep yourself safe and to ensure that you're doing the right educational strategies and approaches for that student. So Kathy, when you were talking about, you know, students in the virtual setting and that there may be some indicators that they may need an IEP or a 504, for those who may be unfamiliar with a 504, can you explain what that plan is and what services are covered? Sure. A 504 plan is really under the American with Disabilities Act, and it's about um, being able to identify those who have a disability. They don't necessarily need an IEP because we're not talking about it affecting their um, educational progress, but it, they need accommodations just in order to be able to access the environment. So a great example is uh, you might have a student in a wheelchair. Um, who has lower like lower paralysis? Um, they need the accommodation of the wheelchair, and they need the accommodation of a of a wheelchair accessible environment. Um, you might have a child who has um, is an efficient efficient braille reader, but she needs he or she needs access to the braille books, um, and that isn't necessarily something that's only available to students with an IEP. So. That 504 plan um, is developed right in school, just like an IEP. It's not the same form and it doesn't have all the same components, but um, it gets done and it gets followed and it gets documented. It's just, it's just under a different section of law and has some different um, requirements. But in essence, again, you're, you're just making that learning environment for in a school context, you're making the learning environment um, from all aspects, physical and to instructional um, available to that student. And Kathy, we've so appreciated your, your insights and your wisdom today on such an important topic and, and the impact it has on all of our partner schools and the education that they're providing their students. Um, as an education podcast, we always like to ask all of our guests about a teacher that's had an impact on, on your life, um, either if it was when you were in school or afterwards. Um, if you want to share a little bit about a teacher that's meant, meant a lot to you on your journey. Well, I'm going to take a little different twist on that. Um, I have had multiple teachers that stick out in my life, but I believe that one of the most influential moments or experiences in my life that took me down this 40 plus year path of, of working with, um, in the field of special education was a young lady, um, who was about nine or 10 years old when I met her and uh, she moved into our community and she had very significant cognitive um, and health-related issues. Her name was Pammy, and uh, Pammy's family wanted her in the neighborhood school. Um, I was a high schooler at the time. She was a sister of my friend, and that school district embraced that idea and enrolled her, and I became a babysitter for Pammy, and I got my first real insights into getting to know an individual with disabilities to that extent. And I right then as a junior in high school said, this is it. This is what I'm gonna do for a living. I am going to work with kids like Pammy. Um, now over my course of my, my career, I have worked with Pammy's, but uh, a whole array, the entire array of, of disabilities. Um, and then as a leader, I have seen just phenomenal educators. Um, and I just, you know, there is nothing that gives me more satisfaction than seeing a phenomenal educator help 
a child rise up and meet their potential. Well, Kathy, we truly appreciate your time today. Like we said, your insights are are so important um, as this is such a critical topic and to ensure that these essential services are being provided. So thank you for being with us and we appreciate everything that you do for our partner schools. It's my pleasure.